This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. All right, well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, we had a birthday boy yesterday, Dr. Compton. Uh, so if you get an opportunity to wish him happy birthday, I encourage you to do so. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, obviously there's probably a somewhat of an expectation when I preach that we'll be in an Old Testament text. And uh, given the fact that I've been spending so much time in Ecclesiastes, uh, it's been foremost in my mind, and so I thought uh, this would be a good opportunity to look at a passage that I've been spending some time on recently. Uh, so we are here in, Eze- uh, not Ezekiel, but Ecclesiastes chapter 3. What I'd like to do is to begin by reading the text, and then we'll uh, work through it together. So beginning of verse 1, I'll read this morning from the ESV. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. I don't know if you're a a fan of late night comedy. I'm not much of one myself, but uh, in various times in my life where I've worked a later shift, uh, sometimes uh, things have have come on and and I've watched uh, Leno or other things. Uh, And if you know something about that particular show, The Tonight Show, uh, it sort of is NBC's darling in terms of late night comedy. And in 2009, NBC Studios decided to do something it had never done before, and that was to hand over, it had only done once before, to hand over the reins of the show to a newcomer. So you remember probably that it it began with uh, Johnny Carson way back in the day. In 1992, Jay Leno uh, took over and remained the host for the next 17 years. And in the spring of 2009, NBC decided to give Leno a primetime slot and brought in a relatively unproved comedian by the name of Conan O'Brien. Now, Conan came in, and admittedly, he had less uh, notoriety, perhaps, than Leno, but he also had a very different style of comedy. 
And it was only about seven months into this that NBC suddenly realized it had made a mistake. And so they opted to, to uh, move Leno back into the Tonight Show slot and to bump Conan. Conan said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he left the network and he's been at TBS ever since. Uh, but recently they moved him again to a more obscure slot. And so it's probably his show is going to be coming to an end. And the New York Times did an interview with Conan and asked him what it's like to be a high-profile comedian, having to continually come up with funny and creative things to say, uh, what sort of uh, mentality is required to be in that sort of business. And this is what Conan said. I thought his reply had some interesting correlations to the book of Ecclesiastes. He said this, The concept that I must be the king of late night, I don't even know what that means. It's an outmoded concept. He said, two years after making his last shows, people will be saying, who's Conan? He said, this is going to sound grim, but eventually all of our graves go unattended. He said he had an eye-opening experience when he once visited the Vermont resting place of the 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. O'Brien found it desolate, despite the fact that, in his words, Coolidge was a pretty popular president in his day. He credits the comedic uh, actor and director Albert Brooks with liberating him from this frantic need to make a permanent mark on the world. He told Brooks, you make movies, they live forever. I just do these late night shows. They get lost, they're never seen again, and who cares? Brooks replied, what are you talking about? None of it matters. It doesn't matter. You'll be forgotten, I'll be forgotten, we'll all be forgotten. After that, O'Brien says, I was walking on air. It was incredibly freeing. Now, his comments might seem like a gloomy thing for a comedian to say, but he's touched upon an insight that I think resonates with uh, Ecclesiastes and with aspects of biblical wisdom, and that is the fact that we are limited. We're going to die. We're mortal. Uh, we're going to be forgotten. Uh, our work will not last. These statements sound perhaps depressing at first blush, uh, even despairing. But there is a sense in which they are actually freeing when we accept the reality of our situation. We're free in God's grace to be realistic about how we should govern our lives, about what expectations we should set, how we should spend the moments and the strength that we do have. And so this morning, I want to take a time to look at this particular section of Ecclesiastes, and it's dealing with the concept of time and season. I've titled this uh, God's Work in the Seasons of Life. And uh, if I could reduce this down to one sentence, uh, the message would be this. In the often painful, divinely structured seasons of life, God is working his purposes for your godliness and joy. So rejoice and fear. In the often painful, divinely structured seasons of life, God is working for your godliness and joy. So rejoice and fear. So let's uh, work through the text together. We've come to chapter 3. And these are some of the well-known, uh, perhaps the most well-known passage within the book, uh, even in popular culture. Uh, this poem is often uh, familiar to many people. And Solomon begins here with the first line that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And uh, the first point I would say is this, that time is appropriate and structured within God's created order. Uh, the point of the poem is that God structures time and that he governs the time of the universe. Clearly, uh, the poem is talking about time. But there are actually two very different schools of thought as to what Solomon is saying about time. 
some suggest that his view of time is deterministic. In other words, what this poem is saying is that the key activities of life are fixed by God and humans have no control over them. That is to say, God ordains what takes place and we have no say in the matter. And so we just need to figure out when God has ordained what and then we just have to fall in line. There's a second group, however, that thinks this idea is wrong and uh, they would suggest that the point of the poem is to show that there's an appropriateness to certain activities. That is to say, there is a time to do this activity or that activity and wisdom tells us which is appropriate at which moment. Now, I wonder, as I've thought through this and, and studied it myself and am still thinking through it, whether these are really mutually exclusive categories. I think rather that Solomon seems to be suggesting that both ideas are present in some sense. That is to say, God is sovereign over the times and seasons of our lives. He obviously structures the seasons. Uh, the opening poem uh, in 1, 4 to 11 talks about this, this relentless rhythm of the sun and the wind and the rivers. And so God structures the times and seasons in a very real sense. Uh, but I don't think that uh, Solomon would say that this absolves us from the, the need to exercise wisdom in knowing what is appropriate. Right? We here in Michigan know you don't plant seeds in January. right? You have appropriate activities for appropriate times. And I think this is reinforced even by the two words he uses to express uh, time in the opening uh, verse. If you look there, it, it says in the ESV, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter. That first word uh, is zaman. It means a set time or a specified time. It means that there are times or seasons predetermined by God. And this is related in the Old Testament to the times of festivals, seasons, months. God determines when spring comes or the fall. He appoints festivals and months in their order. So the seasons of life in some sense are governed by God. But the second word uh, probably means something along the lines of the timing of an event, an appropriate or a suitable time. That is to say the best time or the right time to do something. I think the Net Bible captures this idea in its translation. It says it this way, for everything there is an appointed time and an appropriate time for every activity on earth. So there are times that God has appointed and times that human who are humans who are wise deem appropriate, and both are necessary and critical for successfully navigating a fallen world. And so he opens uh, with this reference to time, and then he launches into this poem. And this poem has been analyzed and scrutinized by many over the years and in lots of different languages and many times and places and uh, trying to figure out what is he doing with these words? Is there a pattern and why, is, why does he arrange it in the way that he does? There are 14 antitheses, so seven times two. And we would likely say, and I think this is right, that these are merisms, meaning they're uh, two poles of activity that really encompass everything in between. And they run the gamut of human activities uh, just some observations. None of the activities is sinful in and of itself. They all require conscious human effort uh, outside of perhaps death. Uh, they collectively touch on aspects of the will, intellect, and affections or emotions. They involve the whole person. And if I had to boil it down, I would say these are the activities uh, that encompass what it means to be human in the world that God has made. So we do these things as human beings, and this distinguishes us as image bearers 
from the animal world. Dogs don't build and, and plant and weep and mourn, but people do, those who bear the image of God. And so uh, these activities encompass human life in a fallen world. But to drill down a little bit and try to understand why does he arrange the things as he does, it helps us a little bit to see the structure of the poem. And this is why I've included this, uh, this PowerPoint here to try to illustrate this in a way that I hope is helpful. If you look at how this is arranged, it's, it seems to be an arrangement of uh, several stanzas, three st two stanzas and a refrain. And there seems to be a, an intentional pattern. Uh, in the first stanza, which would be verses 2 to 4, uh, there's an alternation here of positive or affirmative to negative activities. And so uh, I would explain it this way. The, the lines alternate from desirable to undesirable activities or from affirmative to negative activities. And they tilt toward the negative. They give a realistic picture of the brokenness of the world. And in the first stanza, there's a, a literary hook, if you will, which is the negative activities of uh, verse 2 leading into the negative activities of verse 3. And they revolve around the concept of death or destruction. All right, so if you could see that there... Uh, I put the positive in bold and the negative in italics, and you see how the negative leads into from two to three. Uh, otherwise, there's a certain consistency in the pattern. And verses two to three point to constructive or destructive activities with a closing couplet dealing with mourning that turns to joy. So these are, are activities that revolve around building or demolishing, uh, affirming life or taking life. Uh, in that sense. And then in the second stanza, uh, we have activities that deal with loss or separation. And again, there's a hook from six to seven, uh, the undesirable moving into the undesirable of verse seven. And uh, these deal with, as I said, the ideas of union versus separation. And then verse seven also deals with mourning that turns to action. And then verse eight, uh, really is its own refrain or couplet, and it moves from the personal to the societal levels, uh, love being coordinate with peace, hate with war, moving from the individual to the social level. Uh, and within this, there is a, a chiasm that tends to alternate these activities. All right, so what I want to do is just work through some of these activities and, and spend a moment talking about what some of these things are, beginning in verse 2. He begins in verse 2 and he says there's a, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Uh, probably I, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that it's best to render verse 2 as a time to give birth. There's a lot of vib vibrant and lively discussion about this. Uh, if you translate it literally, it, it says that there's a time to give birth and a time to die. Uh, some say that giving birth here is just a picture of birth to death. And so, uh, you know, that it's suitable to translate it as be born. Uh, however, Solomon does use that construction later on in the book. And so here he, he seems to intentionally alternate giving birth with dying. And this might suggest that it's again related to these constructive, destructive activities. Uh, giving birth builds a society. Uh, dying eliminates people from a society. So it's the idea of building up society. 
and then planting and uprooting may also be a metaphor for death or possibly just uh, life-affirming agricultural work and life-negating work. He goes on to talk about a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Uh, if you think about verse 3, the opening words there, a time to kill and a time to heal, are not actually perfect opposites. Killing and bringing to life would be. But they really represent what humans on the finite level can do. And there may be an echo here of Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, uh, See now that I, even I, am God. There is no one beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And killing and healing are bookends here about God's structuring of, of human life. And uh, there may be an echo here of the fact that uh, killing and healing on the finite level uh, are the most that humans can do. And he goes on in verse 4 to talk about uh, weeping and laughing and mourning and dancing. And again, I think this is uh, mourning that turns to joy. And then he goes into the second stanza. Verse 5 is the most discussed verse in terms of trying to understand what's going on. Uh, in the arrangement of the poem, if you notice this here, throw stones seems to be the positive and gathering stones seems to be the negative. So uh, given the, the structure of the poem, uh, that would seem to be what the sense is. However, it's very difficult to understand what casting stones means, gathering stones also. Uh, there have been a lot of suggestions. Business transactions, uh, some suggest that you throw stones uh, to count or to weigh items in the market. Uh, others have related this, particularly the rabbis, to sexual activities. Others suggest tearing down a building or constructing a building. And some favor an agricultural metaphor that either you're casting stones to sterilize a field or uh, you're perhaps gathering stones to remove them from a field. Uh, so it's difficult to know for sure. I, I tend toward the agricultural idea myself, uh, but again, it's impossible to know for sure if, if that's what he has in mind. But I think it, it does uh, go along with this idea of affirming life uh, in the first sense. Uh, he goes on to talk about a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and throw. Uh, so the idea here is seeking something in order to acquire it. Uh, and then in verse 7, he talks about tearing and sowing, being, being silent and speaking. And I think if we look again at the structure, uh, verse 7 probably mirrors verse 4 in the sense that verse 7 is likely also about mourning. We know in the Old Testament to tear one's garments was often a way to express mourning. And then sowing would signal a, a return to normal life. Uh, also, being silent was customary during a period of mourning. You'll recall Job's friends sit in silence with him for seven days before he speaks. And then the last couplet, uh, again, is this personal to social movement uh, that God has ordained uh, both on the individual and on the societal level, uh, these emotions and uh, these acts. So having looked at the, the time, we get really to the heart of what he's saying. In verses 9 to 15, he then interprets this poem in terms of uh, the life of an individual. And he asks this question, what I would call the programmatic question. What advantage can the worker gain in view of these times? What gain has the worker from his toil? Uh, the reason I would call this the programmatic question is it goes back to chapter 1 and verse 3. 
Solomon opens the book with this question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And if we were to summarize what that sentence means, it's this, what are the advantages compared with the detriments afforded to finite humans as they live and work in a fallen world? That is to say, can they really succeed? Can they achieve an ultimate plus in the win column? And Solomon uses the term gain to express this idea. What possible gain or advantage or benefit can humans hope to attain? Can they somehow reverse the deficit of the sin curse? Can they transcend their finite limitations? And he repeats this question several times in chapter 2. He evaluates his work in 2.11 and he says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. In 2.24, uh, he acknowledges that some benefit may derive from labor if someone enjoys the fruits of his labor with wisdom and contentment. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So here in chapter 3 with this poem on time, the question points specifically to this. Uh, in the times and seasons of life and in God's involvement in and ordering of, of human activities, is it possible to achieve an ultimate gain? And the implied answer is no. There is not an ultimate gain. That is to say, no amount of human effort can change the seasons and events that God has predetermined because God has structured and appointed these times, and so they do not offer the laborer a true or ultimate gain. So if, if that's the case, then what do we do? He goes on then to reflect on uh, what humans ought to do, and I would say it this way, in, in navigating affliction and beauty, limitation and eternity, in the good but fallen world. Notice how he begins verse 10. He says, I have seen, and this is language that suggests a reflection. He repeats this verb, I have seen, in verse 16, in 4.1, and in 4.4, which mark out the units of his reflection. And the verse here in verse 10 uh, echoes 1.13. In 1.13, he said, it is a grievous task God has given to humans to be occupied with or preoccupied with. And now he reflects uh, that he has observed this task. I have seen the, the busyness, the preoccupation, the, the concern that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Uh, and, and essentially he's saying man's inability to alter the times and seasons and inability to, to escape uh, the anxious occupation of labor offsets his possible gain. So we're stuck in a world in which uh, we're occupied with busyness and affliction and it's impossible to transcend that for an ultimate gain. So what do we do in light of that? He goes on in verse 11 uh, to talk about uh, this, this tension between the human experience of time and divine time. If I can use that phrase, I'll explain what I mean in a moment. He says, God has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. Now, this probably seems like a somewhat unusual uh, thing to say, that God has made everything beautiful in his time. Usually the word beautiful in the Old Testament refers to people. Sarah, Rachel, Joseph, they're all described as handsome or beautiful with this word. But the word can also convey an appropriateness or a pleasantness. 
And in the context of the activities here, I think it refers to the fact that God has made all things appropriate, pleasing, suitable, or beautiful to their time. And this is probably an echo of Genesis 131. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Solomon reflects a lot on that verse, I think, in the context of Ecclesiastes. And he goes on to say, God has put eternity into man's heart. There's a lot of discussion about this word eternity and what it means. Uh, some have suggested that the word means the world. God has put the world into human hearts. Uh, but this meaning for the term is not attested anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it seems that the context uh, necessitates a reference to time. Others argue the term means ignorance based on extra-biblical comparisons to other languages. But again, uh, that's unlikely, and it requires a change in the vocalization of the word. So I think the best translation is, is simply eternity. So what does he mean by this? What does it mean that God has placed eternity in the hearts of people? I think it, it suggests here a sense of transcendent time a sense of totality. That is to say, our lives are are bits and pieces and fragments of the whole, but God has placed a desire and a sense of the whole in our hearts. That is to say, uh, we realize that there's something transcendent, and that impinges or touches upon our hearts, but yet our experience is one of limited time and change. We resonate with the transcendent because we are in the image of God, but we experience the fallen world and the passage of time as a painful and difficult thing. Uh, When I used to live in California, I worked as a purchasing manager in a company out there, a healthcare company. And I had a lot of employees who were in many ways very secular, but they would occasionally drop very pietistic sounding phrases like, I know something hap- everything happens for a reason. They'd say things like that. Or, I, I know there's some, some purpose for all this taking place. I just don't know what it is. And I think that was this verse sort of coming out in, in a marginal way in their lives in the sense of saying, I know there has to be something more than what I'm experiencing here. I just don't know what it is, and I can't get there It's veiled to me, but I know there has to be a greater purpose. And I think people realize that. This is why uh, wisdom books are becoming more and more relevant. It's it's interesting how often I talk to pastors who are looking at Ecclesiastes as a future series in their church or a beginning one. And I think in in a whatever age we live in, post-postmodern or whatever, uh, these books resonate because people are looking for something transcendent beyond the brokenness of what they experience. And so Solomon says here that, that humans experience this sense of the eternal. And it's the tension between the timelessness of God and the time-bound nature of humans. It's, it's this tension. Uh, he says in verse 14 that everything God does lasts forever Uh, God structures the cosmos with transcendent time, but we experience limited allotted time. So this tension is is part of the pattern of the frustration Solomon experiences. He's frustrated with the world uh, because we are navigating a fallen world in which we, we want to transcend our limitations and our mortality, but we're unable to do so. I once heard of a preacher who 
um, devised a, a way to reinforce this. He calculated how many months he thought he would have left in his ministry if the Lord tarried. And he got a jar on his desk and he put a stone in that jar to represent every month he had remaining. And at the end of every month, he would take out a stone just to remind himself of the passing of time. And the sense here is, is this, that we experience time as something that is difficult, fleeting. Uh, it changes us. Uh, I, I've thought about this often. You know, what is it about time that ages us? We're sort of bound into this cosmos. But uh, is there a real reason that we age? We're, we're time-bound creatures. And that's what Solomon seems to be getting at here. But we know there's something beyond, and that's the tension he experiences. So in light of that, what do we do? If we can't transcend this frustration of a fallen world, what do we do? His conclusion is this, to enjoy God's timely gifts with thought and care while doing good and fearing God. Okay, that's a bit of a mouthful. But the idea is we, we are careful and thoughtful. We are godly and reverent. And in, in that framework, we enjoy the things God has entrusted to us. As with everything, of course, there's balance, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, but I think we also have to affirm the positive, which Solomon does here. He begins in, in verse 12, and he says, uh, the ESV says, I perceived. It's literally, I know. And it's emphatic. Uh, I know begins verse 12 and begins verse 14. I would probably translate it something like, I came to realize. I came to realize, as he reflected on this, that the best way to navigate this is to enjoy what God has given. So we could say it this way, in view of the times and seasons of our lives, in view of God's sovereignty, in view of the opportune moments God gives us, we should respond with sober satisfaction, reflective joy, and thoughtful delight. And I think this is a helpful corrective, perhaps in some ways, uh, to us as believers. I, I think that we need to remember that our lives as Christians should not always be framed by what we're against, what we deny, and what we prohibit. Obviously, there's a place for discipline. There's a place for self-denial. We're told to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're told to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Christ. Uh, but I think there's also an important element that Christians often miss, and it's the joy that God shares with us. And there is a place for joy in the Christian life. It may not seem that way when you're in the middle of seminary, uh, but there is a joy that God has and that he has shared with us. And I, and I get this sense even from uh, looking at the New Testament and the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Uh, think of the upper room discourse. Uh, what does Jesus tell his disciples there? He says this in John 15, these things have I spoken to you that uh, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says later, you will be sad, but your sadness will turn to joy. He says, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And then he prays in chapter 17 to the Father, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So Solomon says we should rejoice, be joyful, and he goes on to say, and to do good as long as they live. Uh, and again, he commends here doing good. I explain it this way. It means living in the grain with the creational pattern. That is to say, God created us in a certain way. 
and we need to align our lives with that pattern if we're to uh, flourish and be fruitful as he's created us to be. And he goes on here to, uh, to tie this together in verses 14 and 15. He has another I know statement. He says there, I know that everything God does lasts forever. Nothing can be added or detracted. Uh, so the idea is God's work is sovereign. It's eternal. Uh, there are echoes perhaps again of Deuteronomy here where the word of the Lord uh, is not to be added to or detracted from God's work. His commands are enduring, stable, permanent. His work cannot be reversed or overturned. And they're veiled from our eyes, right? But he does this, verse 14 says, so that people will fear him, so that men will fear him. He's hidden this from our eyes so that we reverence God, that we honor him, that we submit to his sovereign hand. And so he... he has created and structured the world in such a way that we would submit and fear him. And then he ends this particular section in verse 15 by saying some obscure things, and the language is a little bit difficult here, uh, but he essentially seems to be pressing this, that uh, both the past and the future and the present are all part of God's plan. In other words, he, he seeks what is pursued, literally, seeming that he keeps on seeking what he has sought before. And this probably relates to the fact that the patterns of the past are repeated in the future. Uh, this ties into the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. The novelist William Faulkner said, said it this way, the past is not never dead, it's not even past. And Solomon would probably say something similar, uh, that the patterns are repetitive, and so there's nothing new under the sun, but all this keeps us from really understanding fully what God has done. All right, well, this is really depressing, right? Where do we go from here? Let me try to boil this down into uh, four principles that I'll conclude with. Uh, ultimately, some people shy away from Ecclesiastes because they do see it as a distressing book. And I think if you read the book as the best man can offer on a finite level, you do walk away with a sort of depressed attitude. But if you recognize that I think what he's doing here is saying we have to be real about the world in which we live. And if we're realistic about the fallenness and brokenness of the world, there are moments of joy that we need to embrace with gratitude and, and careful thought in a way that pleases God. So if I could uh, boil this down to some, some thoughts. The first would be this. Be wise to recognize the appropriate times to do the right activities and rest in God's sovereignty when he brings unexpected seasons into your life. There will be times where, where things we're, we're not planning for occur, right? Things that you didn't anticipate, things that may be challenges. And we need to recognize the appropriateness and also rest in God's sovereignty. My favorite maybe illustration of this is uh, one that I think of a lot. It's uh, what Sarah Edwards wrote to her daughter when Jonathan died unexpectedly at the age of 55 from a smallpox vaccination. You probably know the story. Uh, she wrote to her daughter the following words in a note, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long, but my God lives and he has my heart. I think that's a good reverent posture to have 
knowing that God brings unexpected seasons in life, but he's sovereign, and uh, we, we need to both embrace gratitude but also kiss the rod. And then number two, enjoy the beauty and orderliness that God has embedded in the fabric of his originally and ultimately good world. There's a lot I could say along these lines, but the, the, the essence of wisdom is that God has created a pattern, and we need to find that pattern and live our lives accordingly. And so Solomon is reinforcing that idea to live uh, with wisdom in the world God has made. And then the last points sort of uh, interweave. Enjoy his good and seasonable gifts with thought and care. Enjoy God's good and seasonable gifts with godliness and reverence. The first one I would say this way, joy must be coupled with godliness. And the second I would, or the first is joy must be coupled with wisdom. And the second is joy must be coupled with godliness. So we live life with wisdom and with godliness, uh, and that's the way to navigate with joy uh, what God has ordained. So again, if I could sum it up this way, in the often painful, divinely structured seasons of life, God is working for your godliness and joy, so rejoice and fear. And I encourage you today to think along these lines as we think about God's work in the seasons and times of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had this morning, and we thank you for this passage, which uh, helps to recalibrate our thinking about the world in which we live. I pray that we would uh, be able to have wisdom and insight as we seek to navigate the world in a way that's pleasing to you and in a way that honors you. We thank you for uh, just uh, the brief moments that we've had this morning. I pray that your word would uh, be impressed upon our hearts in a way that would encourage us as we go forward to serve you faithfully. And we ask all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.